May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. And I'm super excited today because Gigi McKelvey has agreed to be my guest. And I know she is very in demand right now. How are you, Gigi? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. It's good to see you. Gigi operates a podcast of her own called Pre-Lies and Alibis, and does a lot of work in the true crime space, which we have never talked about really on this podcast. We do a lot of different legal topics, but this whole true crime community out there in the world, and I think a lot of people who listen to my podcast don't really understand it. So I want a little help with that, and we're going to talk about the true crime community and a couple specific cases. So, Gigi, question number one, how'd you get into this? I started years ago and was on an internet show, but my kids were little, so I decided to take a little break and walk away from it because, you know, it's hard when you have little kids, but you have to travel. And so I don't like to be away from my kids very much. So it kind of was a good time for me to step away. And then COVID hit, and I kind of binged all of the Netflix shows I wanted to binge and started reading about Lori Vallow's case in the news. And it was so intriguing that I started doing what I used to do, which is looking up social media profiles, trying to find little bits and pieces online before the news kind of saturates everything that, that you pull up on these people. And so I just got sucked back in with this case. Now, I started the podcast with my best friend of 30 years, and she was with me actually till last July. She left to go do, she is providing a safe place for domestic violence victims and children, men, women, and children. And so I I decided to keep going. And yeah, so it was really born out of COVID boredom, this podcast, And we just started with that one mainly and then spread out to other mainstream cases that were just getting a lot of attention in the media. And it kind of just grew from there. Well, that's very productive. The only thing I got out of COVID is learning to make banana bread. (laughs) I'm glad you got (laughs) more out of it. You and a lot of people. I know a lot of people who learned to make bread during COVID. So I, I found that there's so much true crime out there now. And by that, I mean podcasts on audio form or people on YouTube. And my question is, how does somebody discerning sort of pick and choose amongst all of that and, and find people that are reporting the facts? It's hard. There's so many true crime podcasts out there, and there are a ton that are amazing. Some people love the kind of the platform of rumor and speculation, so they'll find their their group there. But it's really kind of a, I found it's a word of mouth thing that if you're known for facts, it sort of gets out there. And there are a lot of amazing true crime podcasts that are fact-based. I mean, on my show, I don't do rumor and speculation. I think it's detrimental to the case itself. As big as the internet is, you get rumor and speculation, and it's, it's truth by the end of the day, which a lot of times can implicate very innocent people who have no connection to a case, but somebody's hunch kind of takes off like wildfire. So I think it's important that you just vet your podcast that you're hoping to to find one that that fits you and see what people are saying. You know, you can Google search the topics you, or the name of the podcast. There are reviews that you can look over and 
Sometimes people like to leave negative reviews just for fun. But right. for the most part, your, your word of mouth, uh, Facebook groups, oftentimes specific cases will recommend podcasts that are covering that case. That's how a lot of people found me through Lori Vallow was through the Facebook groups. So I always say start, if you have Facebook, start there. Look in these groups of cases you're interested in. Usually there's podcast recommendations. If not, go to the Apple store, look at those reviews underneath and people will let you know as a whole whether or not it's a lot of hogwash or whether it's factual and tries to keep the integrity of that case intact. Okay, well, those are all good suggestions. I want to talk quickly about two of the big true crime cases. One is Alec Murdoch, which I know you were covering for Law and Crime Network. You were down there for the entire trial. I know that because I was on air with you a few times. So, what was it like to be there in South Carolina for all six weeks of that? Yeah, so it's a home state case for me. I'm a little less than three hours from Walterboro where it took place. It was very surreal, and I find that with any trial that I cover back in the day, sitting in the room with Jody Arias or James Holmes, who was the Colorado theater shooter, you follow these cases up until trial, and then you go and you sit in the same room as people who are accused of doing terrible things. They make eye contact with you. They may smile. They may nod. And it's a very surreal experience. So for Murdoch, I know people that know the family. So I had a little bit of insight into how they worked when things were, I guess, good in their world, before, mainly before the boat crash. That's kind of what, that was the little tiny snowball that got downhill and got bigger as it went. But it was interesting because being inside the courtroom, you can watch the family, you can watch the jury, which is a big deal. Watching the body language of that jury was very insightful throughout that case. And then when he took the stand, we kind of thought he might. And then we thought, "Mm, no, he's an attorney and he knows that's a terrible idea. But that was the most interesting part of that entire trial was when he took the stand. And it was a terrible idea. (laughs) It was a horrible idea, but it was a catch-22. He had to get up there and explain that kennel video. I mean, it was just every person that knew him, as you know, they played that video. Yep, that's him 100%. That couldn't go unanswered because otherwise, in closings, the state's going to jump all over that and say, well, he's at the kennel, so... You know, it didn't fare well for him, but I think he had to do it. I really do. I think it, I've heard his attorneys did not want him to do it, which is not yeah, surprising I, to you, I, I'm sure. I don't know. I I was quizzical of the decision. If you're my client and you say, I want to take the stand and I say, well, what are you going to say? Well, I'm going to say I lied for 10 years straight to everybody I know. I'm going to say I committed a number of horrible financial crimes. I robbed a quadriplegic. I robbed other clients. I robbed my law firm. I'm also going to testify that I'm a drug addict and I suffer from paranoia. I'm going to say sit down. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You're not getting on the stand and right. say it all on that. And at the end, he's like, and they'll believe me and think I'm not guilty, which was just delusional. But yeah, we were all kind of shocked when the moment came because that morning before they brought the jury in, the judge spoke to him and essentially said, You don't have to do this. This is your choice. And so you should have seen that jury when he stood up and said he was taking the stand. You know, they can't talk to each other, but man, they're shifting in their seats and you know they wanted to lean over and be like, oh my gosh, he's taking the stand. So that was the moment for me in that whole trial were those two days he was on the stand. That's what's missing when I go on TV and watch all these cases is we can never see the jury. 
Right. And it's so key to what's happening in a courtroom to see how the jury's reacting. And we always just have to guess. It, it's very true. And I had pegged two holdouts. And interestingly enough, there were two holdouts. And I have spoken to a juror who confirmed the two that I watched for six weeks were holdouts for the 45 minutes. You know, I mean, at first it was two were completely just not guilty. One was just teeter-tottering. But within 45 minutes, they were able to get all of the three that were that were not on board with guilty on the table. And that verdict came back quickly. But the body language is interesting. There were times where they would get bored and you could tell the financial really drug on. And I think that it was a little, you know, but you think it's too much, but then you have a juror who goes on air and says, no, it was very important to hear all of those financial cases because it establishes a pattern. And so, yeah, watching the jury, it, it intrigues me. And that's what I used to do when I did this years ago, along with live tweeting trials, was reading juries. And I love to do it because they tell a tale with their body language, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll ask you the ultimate question. Do you think this jury got it right from your view of the court? I do. I think that everything was so tight on that timeline that there's not much you can dispute. I think what did him in was that kennel video and the fact that he lied to Celeb multiple times about being down at that kennel. I do think the jury got it right. They sat for six weeks and listened. It's very hard to trust somebody who pretty much the whole trial was based around the fact that he was a liar. And so in the end, when you're asking them to believe him about something that has such a little tiny window of could it have been him? Could it have been someone else? It just didn't work out for him. I, I do think they got it right. Yeah. The, to me, the key thing a jury decides is credibility. Yep. So when you put him on the stand and he sits six or 10 feet away from the jurors and they look him in the, in the eye, they get to decide that. And, and I totally support their decision and your view of the case. Let me jump to the next big one. You mentioned Lori Vallow Daybell. So I am in the middle of listening to your podcast series where you sort of provide a preview of the case. And I think it's 10 episodes long. Is that what you ended up with? That's the crash course. So I have yeah. a deep dive, which is 58 episodes that takes the what I've done so far, which will probably take me through the end of the week, to be honest. Then I leave Sunday to go to Boise. But it, it's amazing how much is involved in this case. And we don't know the half of it yet. We don't know what they have up there in Idaho. We were fortunate enough in this case to get two document dumps for Charles Vallow's murder, which is Lori's fourth husband, who was shot and killed by her brother. And then we got the Gilbert document dump. There was an attempt on Lori's niece, who was part of that group, her husband, now, luckily, they didn't succeed, but that gave us a big preview of some of the things to come, I think, in this trial, as well as their communications back and forth, a lot of text messages. So I thought I could do the crash course in three episodes, and here I am just finished recording number 12. All right. So well, that tells let, me me. Ask you, let me ask you this very difficult question. Pretend the listeners of this podcast don't know much about it. Can you give us a big picture overview of what this case is about in two minutes? Okay. So you have Lori Vallow, who in the end had five husbands, two biological children by two different fathers, and an adopted child with her fourth husband. 
And she starts getting radicalized in this all kind of, a, I call it a splinter group of the LDS church. It's not even remotely near what LDS teaches from my understanding, but she connects with Chad Daybell, who is a doomsday author and like-minded. She starts listening to podcasts, gets deeper and deeper and deeper into these theories. She meets Chad, fire and gasoline are those two. And then all of a sudden, she starts believing his crazy beliefs that demons possess bodies, and the only way you can free the spirit of the original person is to kill the physical body. So this trial involves four victims, technically five. One of her husbands was found dead. It, it was ruled natural. I have questions. But this trial specifically is for her two children, Tylee, Ryan, and J.J. Vallow, as well as Chad Daybell's wife, Tammy Daybell, who, of course, died mysteriously at 49 in her sleep. No autopsy done, by the way. And her brother, who people call the family hitman, who is believed to have committed the murders of Charles and the two children, drops over dead the day after they exhumed Chad Daybell's body because no autopsy was done. He's charged with her murder. So it's a lot of murder. It's a lot of religion that's just, it's, it's not even a religion. It's its a band of misfits that believed some dude that was just, I don't even think he bought what he was selling. He was drunk off the power that he had over this group. And a lot of people died for really selfish reasons. So that's kind of the case. Otherwise, we could be here until next month if I were to dive too deep into it. It's really fact intensive. It's got a, a lot of players and a very long time line. It's going to be interesting trying to keep track. How long is this trial going to last, do you know? Well, originally it was slated for 10 weeks, but that's because they were co-conspirators. That case has been severed. Also, just last week, the judge took death off the table due to the fact that the state was late in handing over some pretty large discovery items that included 3,000 phone calls from her husband, Chad, in jail to other people and thousands of pages of documents. So now it looks like it's going to be cut in half. Maybe four to five weeks is what I'm hearing. So that's much better than 10 weeks because I, you know, traveling from South Carolina to Idaho, I'll be up two weeks at a time. It, it would get hard after 10 weeks. But yeah, so we're here in four to five weeks for this now that death's off the table, and she's not going to argue mental illness in the guilt or innocence phase. So a lot of things have shortened it. So we're hearing, yeah, half the time as of now, but you know how that goes. That's a terrible way to lose a death penalty case as the prosecutor based on late production of discovery material. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I really do think they should have hired a, an experienced clerk his or her job would be solely to handle the the discovery in the case. It is terabyte upon terabyte, and it's a lot. But they've had three years with this case. And so a lot of mistakes have been made kind of in the last six months, I would say. But the thing to remember, she was incompetent last year for 10 months. She was in a state mental hospital. And then they dropped her. Her attorney was taken off the case you get two new attorneys who are public defenders. They're late to the game, and she does not waive her right to a speedy trial. So they are just two hands tied behind their back, her attorneys. So for me, I'm not quite as uh, sympathetic to the prosecution who know the deadlines, and that's every right for the defense to be very upset. That they right. don't get this you know stuff the on deadline, time. You have the assets. You should be able to do it. 100%. So you're going to be there in Boise. Tell us... Uh, I was listening to you. You were you were doing a Murdoch summary recap every day, and I would listen to those. And 
among your many great skills. I just really admire your ability to come out of court and summarize factually in a half hour what happened in a day of testimony. So I imagine you're doing the same thing in the Daybell trial. Yeah, thank you for that. I am. And it's going to be Oh, man, the listeners really are going to have to rely on podcasts for this. Uh, There's no live streaming of this trial. The judge has shut down any kind of live feed, whether it's audio or video. Now, you can pay for the audio feed every day. It's going to end up in being, I've heard, $90 to $60 somewhere in there. But the average person doesn't have that. So same thing with Valo Daybell as I did with Murdoch once I'm finished for the day at the courthouse. I'll go back, record the podcast in an hour or less and tell you everything you missed and give you the best parts. It, it, it really, I, I take notes like crazy in court. Now, in Murdoch, we weren't allowed computers, so I'm surprised my hand is not still kind of in that writer's cramp shape because trying to write testimony for eight hours. But this trial, thank goodness, we can have our laptop. So I'll be live tweeting as well and then, you know, come home at night and, and sum it up for people who can't, you know, sit and read Twitter all day. And don't have time to listen to the audio if they get it. So, yeah, I'm doing the same thing. And that's my passion is is covering live trials. And we can find your summaries on Pretty Lies and Alibis, either in audio form, wherever people get podcasts, as they say. And you're also on YouTube, right? I am. I have a video version. I I did not for a long time, but the listeners, some people are vi- are visual. So I've incorporated graphics and everything. So yeah, you can find me wherever you get your your podcast or on YouTube and across social media. I post little updates here and there. So yeah, Excellent. come check it out. Well, I can't afford that daily audio feed. I can't even afford a blue check on Twitter. So uh, <laughs> I'm not doing that. That's funny. All right, last topic for the day. I promised you this. I understand you're a big Pink Floyd fan. Huge, uh, huge. Yeah. I skipped. So, I, I skipped school my senior year to go stand in line at Clemson University to get tickets for their Division Bell tour, and told my parents I was spending the night at a friend's house and went and saw Pink Floyd. So yeah, I'd, it's a wonder my kids aren't named after some song or something. That is excellent. That's the only time I saw Pink Floyd in concert was that tour. I saw him at Yankee Stadium. Oh, wow. Yeah. we. I just took my oldest to see Roger Waters last year in Atlanta. It was great. Okay. So two questions. Favorite Floyd album? Dark Side of the Moon. I think Dark Side of the Moon is obviously their best. I mean, it's one of the great rock albums of all time. It's so hard, though. I'm a little partial to Animals. Animals is great. It's almost like asking me what favorite kid I have. I mean, it's <laughs> there are so many, you know, it may depend on the week, my mood. It might be that I'm listening to to animals or metal or the wall. You know, if I'm feeling really kind of mad, I'll throw on the wall and just get kind of like, because that's such a, you know, an angry album in a lot of ways. But yeah, Dark Side of the Moon for me, I remember being a kid sitting on our living room floor with my dad's huge headphones. I was probably five. They have pictures. They take up the whole side of my head and listening to Dark Side of the Moon as a five-year-old and being blown away. And ever since then, just if you could see the rest of my studio, it's pretty much all Pink Floyd. (laughs) Excellent. I get bummed out from time to time by the ongoing fighting between David Gilmore and Roger Waters. Uh, yeah. Do you pick a side in that? I don't pick a side. It's Again, it's like asking me which kid's my favorite. I mean, Roger Waters just amazing at what he does songwriting, but man, Gilmore on that guitar and his voice and comfortably numb when he comes in with the chorus, it's, it's hard to do. All I wish is, look, these guys are not getting any younger. They need to put it all aside and give us one more tour 
before, you know, their Wikipedia gets updated that they're not here anymore. Come on, you're one of the greatest progressive bands ever. Give us one more tour. Y'all, they both have enough money. It's not about who has more money or who wrote this song or that song. Y'all are old. You're supposed to get mellow in your old age. Put it aside. Give us a tour. Come on. All right. I second that. I second that motion. Okay. Uh, we wrap up these episodes with a closing argument. So now I'm going to I'm going to go back to the topic and throw throw maybe a harder one at you. There's a fair amount of criticism floating around about the true crime community. You hear about it right now with some of what's going on with Buster Murdoch. There are some unsubstantiated allegations against him in a in a death that's being investigated in South Carolina. A lot of people are screaming defamation, but more generally speaking, some people argue that some of the true crime community is too quick to accuse without the evidence, without the facts. And that puts private people in the spotlight for things they might not have committed. So how do you respond to that sort of feeling about true crime? They're absolutely right. And it's so dangerous. And we really saw it in the Brian Koberger case with the Idaho Four where every day it was a new suspect who had went in and killed these kids, and it ruins lives. And I think that that, the one thing for me is people who do this, people who thrive on naming whatever person they see on social media, oh, look, he's doing this, it's got to be him. They're not really passionate about true crime. They're passionate about the thrill of the gossip or trying to be the first one to spot something. The real true crime community is passionate about justice and seeing it served the right way, getting the right suspect, not who we think is the right suspect, but the right suspect, getting them convicted and behind bars. So I think there's a big divide between those people that just like the drama of it all and then those people in the true crime community who love sometimes as messed up as it can be the process of it all, watching it go from a search for a suspect to a suspect to uh, a successful trial and a conviction or an acquittal if you've got the wrong person. You know, so for me, I, I, I don't even consider these people that are more clickbait, I guess is what you call them, true crime community. It's just, it, it's an avenue to get clicks. And I think that as a whole, it can give the true crime community a bad name, but most of us are out here wanting to get the facts out there and that's it. And, and just passionate for justice for people that have no voice. So I think the two groups are like oil and water, in my opinion. You make a really good point. It is it is unfair to lump, I mean, there's so many people out there, to lump them all together because there are different types of programs and, and there are people who are really fact and evidence oriented and and there are people who are self-promoters at home. And I do think people mean well. I don't think that people you know, get online. Most people, I don't know. I mean, I've seen some wackadoodles out there doing this, but you know, I think most people get online and they really do think they're onto something. It's just, it's kind of like one of those things where you have to learn if you don't know for sure, keep it to yourself. Or if you feel that inclined, you know, submit an online tip. Don't be calling the police station with your theory because they're busy. So yeah, I think it's a different world between those two. But for me, if, it, if I can't see it on a piece of paper or have it verified by somebody in law enforcement or part of, part of the prosecution or defense, it's not coming on because it can derail these investigations. They have to stop what they're doing and address the public 
at a press conference. That's taking time away from finding the real person who committed whatever crime. And in the meantime, you could be ruining somebody's life who is totally innocent based on a hunch you have from what you saw on their Instagram. All right. Very well said. So I'm going to end at that. Gigi McKelvey, host of the Pretty Lies and Alibis podcast. Thank you so much. Enjoy the springtime in uh, in Idaho. Oh, it's going to be a little chilly. I'm, I'm in 80 degree here. I'm about to go up to 50. So you girls bring in her parka. <laughs> Stay warm. We'll see you soon. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at tartarkrinsky.com. You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief. <laughs>